This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Well, good morning and welcome to our campuses in Appleton and Stevens Point and those of you who are joining us online as well. We hope you had a great time in worship this morning. Would you all stand with me please as we recite the Apostles' Creed? This is our statement of faith and what we believe in as a church here at Celebration. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I'm sure you know by now, Pastor Mark and Deanna are beginning to wrap up their whirlwind tour of February, the month of love. They're continuing to minister to couples throughout our country and actually out of our country this weekend as well. We're so grateful, church, that, that we can give him the space to do that. I hope you know that every time a couple's uh, marriage is impacted by the ministry of Laugh Your Way, it really is a win for Celebration Church. So we're just so delighted that we can support him in those endeavors as well. Um, he did, of course, want to welcome you all this morning and greet you from his travels. He sent us a great guest speaker that he's going to also give an introduction to, so I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Mark. Good morning, Celebration, and greetings from... Where are we? Bonneville. Bonneville. Alberta. Alberta. We are like three hours north of Edmonton, yes. which is way up at the end of the world. And then from there, you get in a car and you drive for three more hours to get up to this place. Yes. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. All right. <laughs> we are cruising around in our stretch limo. Woo! So, so, okay, so check out this story. This is so cool. So this guy, he sees us online and he becomes like a big fan. And, sorry, as we're driving along. And he says, listen, I own a limo. I would love to just drive you guys around when you're here. Yeah. And we thought, uh, okay. We'll take <laughs> now, it. We'll take it. Well, Deanna says she's a little embarrassed everywhere we go in this big limo. I love it personally. I, I think it's fabulous. I, I need a limo just to drive us around Green Bay. That would be awesome. Yeah, there's too much attention. <laughs> oh, yeah, I hate attention. Yeah. So, anyway. Uh, him and his lovely Leslie uh, watch us online all the time at Celebration Church. Kind of our Celebration Church family 
that uh, is our online church. We also met another, another lady up here, Mandy. Mandy. Mandy's her name. She's awesome. Great lady. Also watches all our sermons and stuff like that. It's so fun to travel around the world and meet people who are part of Celebration Church. We touch so many people's lives, y'all. Y'all, all y'all, you have no idea how many yeah. people, because of your support and faithfulness, are allowing us to minister to people as we're listening to the message coming out of our church. It is such an amazing blessing. Anyway, this morning, uh, while we are on our way flying back to Green Bay, finally, we've been on the road for a while. You've been gone how long? 17 days. 17 days, I almost as much. Uh, and we finally get home this week for a whole three days off. And then, <laughs> and then we're back at it again. Yeah. No rest for the weekend. Anyway, actually it's a great time of the year. We're very, very right. busy, but we're touching so many people's lives yeah. because of your support. We're able to not just take in, but also to give out to other people. Absolutely. And uh, it makes it really, really, really nice to be able to do that uh, and, uh, and succeed in touching so many people's lives. So anyway. This morning, as we are flying back to you. Uh, oh, by the way, we will be here for Wednesday night. Yes. Our Wednesday night is our Ash Wednesday service. Uh, we're so looking for it. It's the kickoff of Lent. It is our most liturgical service of the year. You know, churches tend to either be evangelical or uh, charismatic or liturgical. We take all three and we blend them together. It's really what we do. But this service is our most liturgical service. It's an ancient service. The tradition goes back a long time. Uh, this Ash Wednesday service. It's a great service. It's a service to remind you that you're gonna die. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? Oh, Everybody's gonna die, right? Yeah. So many people act like they're not gonna die. They act, yeah. they just go around, lul, 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 and hey, we're all gonna kick off someday. <laughs> and Ash Wednesday is to remind us that we are but ashes. We came from dust and we're gonna go back to dust. So it's kind of a you know more serious, reflective service, and it's good. Uh, Bishop Ed will be here for that service, and Bishop Sean, a new guy that we just met. He's amazing. Such a sweet man. You're going to love him. Uh, so that's this Wednesday. Uh, so don't miss that. This, uh, what, today is uh, our special guest sitting in for me is Dr. Chris Green. Dr. Green is a professor of theology. And uh, don't let that frighten you. He's a nice man. <laughs> but uh, we met him. I'm going to pull this down a little bit. She wants me to hold this out. Right? So we look cooler. <laughs> but my arm's tired from holding out so far. Woman, quiet over there. So anyway, Dr. Green, oh uh, we uh, became aware of him. Well, we were doing uh, lessons online, some of our pastors and stuff. Dr. Green has been teaching. And uh, we invited him to come. So could you sit in? He said he'd love to do it. Anyway, you're going to love this guy. He's a great guy. Let's give him a big celebration. Welcome <laughs> as I lift my camera back up oh, to man. Dr. Chris Green this morning. Dr. Green. Good to be here. So I, I am a professor, as he said, and in Lakeland, I've never had an introduction quite like that. Uh, I've never been in, introduced with that title before, but I'm going to use it. I'm going to I'm going to go with it. So I live in Lakeland, Florida, and which is about halfway between Tampa and Orlando, and lovely, lovely people there. But I'm one of those folks who doesn't like sunshine and warmth. So Florida's not really the place for me, right? More than two or three days of sunshine and I, I become really depressed. And <laughs> this is perfect for me, right? This is, 
this is what I've been longing for. This is my first trip to Green Bay. I slept outside last night. I enjoyed it so much. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't. That, that's the first lie I've told today. But no, I, I didn't sleep outside, but I did l- love the weather. They, um, Becky and Keith showed, showed me around the city some, had wonderful meals. So thank you for that. Thanks to all of you for welcoming me. This is my first, and who knows, maybe my last time in Green Bay, so I'm going to make the most of it. <laughs> Make, make, absolutely make the most of it. I was just with Pastor Mark, Pastor Phil, and the Shomers at a retreat in which I had to speak on the problem of evil. Um, make sure you catch Pastor Keith after the service and talk to him about his thoughts about it. But that morning, it was a morning session, I had accidentally taking, taken my sleeping pill before I gave the talk, which I, I don't know if that helped or hurt. This morning, I didn't take a sleeping pill, so... If it don't goes, doesn't go well this morning, then I'm going to go back to, to, trying, to trying that. No, really do catch up with him and ask him about the problem of evil talk. It was, it was fun. And, you know, talking about evil, what could be more fun than that? Yeah, you're going to have to, listen, if, I know that you've heard jokes like that before because I know enough about your pastor and <laughs> Bishop Ed to know those kind of jokes are made. When I first started speaking for Bishop Ed, I, won't, I, won't, I don't know you well enough to tell you the full story, but I know you well enough to tell you to ask Bishop Ed about the full story. So I'm, I'm asked to speak at, at Sanctuary, and I am following, coming the week after Bishop Ed on this topic that has been assigned. So I decide that I would watch his talk. And he tells a story about a particular man he had to care for. That's all the detail I'm going to give you. But that's when I realized, you know, I really am safe. I can say anything. When I'm coming after the Gungers, I can say anything. Because you're used to hearing that, right? I am completely safe. Completely safe. So I, I feel so wonderful this morning that the weather is cold, there's snow on the ground, and I'm in a perfectly safe place, right? No matter what happens from here, it's going to go well. In fact, at that retreat, Bishop Ed said something about me as one of his favorite preachers, immediately followed by, but I like bad preaching just as well as I like good preaching. Which isn't even a backhanded compliment. That's just a backhand, right? Like that's, so no matter what happens this morning, everything, everything's great, right? If you don't like it, Bishop Ed will, and nothing I say will be surprising. So this is the last Sunday before Lent, and on this day, we are assigned, those, those traditions that, that follow the, the lectionary are assigned the story of the transfiguration. Now, the same story comes up later in, in, the, in the year, but it's, it's interesting that we read this story just before Lent, the story of Jesus being transfigured. And essentially, if you think about it, what we have is Lent between the story of two experiences of Jesus on the mountain. So this moment that we're going to read about in just, in just a second, about his transfiguration, 40 days later, his crucifixion. So these moments when he's lifted up, his disciples around him, but of course, drastically different experiences. And Lent, in, in some ways, is, is the experience of living out the, con, the contrast between those two moments. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. So let's, let's read this story, Matthew 17. This appears in the other Gospels as well. In fact, the Gospel of John, one way of reading the Gospel of John is as one long transfiguration story. Moses and Elijah appear very early in John, the first chapter, and then the rest of the Gospel of John is essentially a spelling out of the transfiguration. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have various versions of this story. We're going to look at Matthew's version today. 
Six days later, this is six days after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, right? So Jesus has the question, who do people say I am? They name various prophets, Elijah, Jeremiah. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, you're the Christ. Six days after that moment, Jesus takes with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now this is typical actually of the Gospels in that we, we get no glimpse into what Jesus is thinking. The Gospels are very careful never to tell us, or almost never to tell us, what Jesus is thinking when he does something or what he's feeling when he does something. Occasionally we'll get a glimpse that he is in angered or in grief or moved with compassion, but very rarely do we get any sense at all of what he's thinking. And here we have no idea. He simply takes the three disciples. We don't know why he didn't take them all, but he takes the three disciples and he goes up the mountain and he is transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Father, I pray that my words today will be plows and not swords. It will break up the ground that needs to be broken up so that you can pour your life into us. I pray that we will hear what it is that you want us to hear and that you will awaken in us the faith to respond faithfully. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. I think the most interesting, the most provocative, the most pregnant line in Amazing Grace, the hymn Amazing Grace, is this one. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." And I, I think it's provocative because instinctively we know that grace teaches us not to fear. It, it relieves our fears. But the song suggests that it, it only relieves the fears after it has awakened them, after we've been taught to fear, taught what to fear and how to fear. And the transfiguration story is a story about fears learned and fears relieved. It's about fears being awakened and fears being put to rest. You can see this dramatically in the Orthodox icon tradition. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with it, but in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there is a tradition of iconography, icons, a kind of painting, but within special, special parameters of events in scripture and particularly events in Jesus' life, his baptism, his transfiguration, his crucifixion. And they, they depict theologically what is, what is taking place in the moment. And in this iconographic tradition, inevitably, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, are portrayed as overcome with fear. Very often, in fact, they're, they're portrayed as, as almost tumbling down the mountain, thrown down the mountain away from Jesus with their backs to him and their faces covered. In the one that I'm showing you this morning, 
In fact, you get three different responses. James seems to be the least afraid. John, who's the young one, is a bit overcome. He's covering his face, but is still turned toward Jesus. But Peter is entirely turned away with his face covered, his back to Jesus and his eyes covered. But in this iconographic tradition, you always see some version of this where the disciples are overcome with fear. And, and that's what I'm interested in, in exploring with you this morning. What, what are they afraid of? Why are they afraid? What is grace teaching them to fear or teaching them about their fear? It's interesting that they're not afraid until the cloud descends and the voice of the Father speaks. So they, they go up the mountain and at the top of the mountain, Jesus is suddenly transfigured before them. He, he explodes with light. His face, his skin shines like the sun. And they're standing feet away from him. I mean, they're overcome by the light. And his clothes are even radiating light. And suddenly, Moses and Elijah appear with him. But the disciples, at least Peter, seems unfazed by all of that. He's probably still has, has a, a bit of shame because of what's happened just before this in the valley, just about a week before. He had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, but of course immediately following that episode, Jesus predicts that he will go to Jerusalem and be killed, and Peter takes him inside and says, no, Lord, you won't. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So I, I can imagine that in this moment, Peter is looking for a chance to kind of find his way back into the good graces of Jesus. I mean, Jesus just called him Satan. He's looking for a way to kind of restore the relationship. And so Peter is enthralled. Let me build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And he, he doesn't seem phased at all. You think he would be. I mean, Jesus is a supernova. And Moses and Elijah have appeared out of nowhere to be with Jesus. And, if, and, and there's something supernatural about it, of course, because Peter and James and John don't know Moses and Elijah. These prophets have been dead for generations. And yet suddenly here they are. Not ghosts, apparently, but certainly not present in the way that you and I are. And yet they seem unfazed. They're not frightened by it. Until the cloud settles, a bright cloud settles, and a voice speaks. This is my son, the beloved I'm pleased in him, listen to him, and then it says they are thrown to the ground and overcome with fear. Why? Why of all that is happening, is it the voice of the Father and the, and the acclamation of the Son, the affirmation that the Son is beloved, why does that overwhelm them? I mean, you, you wouldn't blame them if they had been taken off guard by the explosion of light or the appearance of Moses and Elijah. There's a lot of weird stuff happening I mean, Jesus, there's weird stuff happening around Jesus all the time, but I mean, this is, this is weird even for Jesus. And yet they take it in stride until the Father speaks. But why would the voice of the Father frighten them in this way? Why would it terrify them? So that they are, they're not just awed by the majesty. I mean, I think that's the easiest way to take this text is that the majesty is too much for them. And, and I certainly do think it's majestic. It, it, it is awesome in that sense. But it, it doesn't simply say that they're awed. It says they're terrified. And there, there is a distinction. It's, it's, not, it's not just that they are impressed with the majesty of the voice of God. It's that something in them is awakened. Some deep fear is awakened. 
Perhaps it is fear of God. Perhaps they are recognizing in that moment, what grace is exposing in that moment is that at the seat of their heart, at the center of who they are, they fear that God is not for them, that God is not with them, that God's love exhausts itself before it reaches them. And I think that many of us, whether we know this about ourselves or not, I think many of us live with that kind of fear. Whether it's ever consciously expressed or not, whether we ever admit to ourselves or not, that somewhere deep in our subconscious, deep in our heart of hearts, we are afraid that God is not as good as we hope he is, at least not toward us. That God, whom we like to say is loving and we like to say is gracious, might not be loving and gracious toward me. And I think this is especially true. It exposes itself, especially in times of incredible difficulty. I I was raised in rural Oklahoma in a very intense Pentecostal holiness church, Pentecostal and holiness, the kind of church where the ladies wear long dresses and have buns piled up on their head and no makeup, and church services last for six or seven hours at a time. That's how you know God was moving. And... I would often, as a kid, have nightmares about the coming of God or about the appearance of God. One of my earliest memories, in fact, is a dream I had when I was six or seven or so about being in church between my parents. My parents always sat in the same pew. I sat between them. We didn't have children's church. So I I sat between my parents on the third pew to the right facing the pulpit. And in my dream, I'm sitting there and I'm wearing, of course, it's Oklahoma, so I'm wearing cowboy boots and Wrangler jeans, and a pearl snap cowboy shirt. I remember it so, so, so vividly. And I have, because I thought it was cool, I have left the top pearl snap unsnapped. (laughs) Really, I mean, I had the look going. And suddenly in this church service, in my dream, two angels appear. And of course, at that time, I imagined angels as tall, blonde men with wings. And so here suddenly at the front of the church are two angels. And I realize immediately this is the rapture. It's fascinating that in scripture, the, the coming of God is what is longed for. The, the heart of the prayer of the New Testament is come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That the heart of prayer in the New Testament is a longing for the coming of God. But for me, it was a point of terror. I didn't want God to come. Not only because I wanted to get old enough to get married and have a family, but also because I was terrified that God would come. And so in my dream, I realized this is the rapture and that they're sorting us into groups to go and not to go. And I realized that I only have a couple of minutes before they get to my pew and I've got to get this pearl snapped. (laughs) I don't know for sure that they won't include me, but I'm afraid that they might not. They might look at that and call it out as the sin that it obviously is. And so in my dream, I'm feverishly trying to get this pearl snap to snap, but it gets stuck where it's not quite snapped. It's, it's, it's touching the snap, but it's not snapped in place. And I wake up screaming. Now, it is funny. I mean, it's pretty, I mean, you, yes, you should feel some compassion for me. I mean, <laughs> it was a traumatic experience. I can laugh about it now, but think about what that says about how I had internalized fear of God. So if you'd asked me at six or seven years old, what is God like? I'm sure I would have said God is love. God is gracious. God is kind. 
But in my heart of hearts, what I sensed was he's all of that for others, but not for me if I'm not good. If in any way I'm not as good as he wants me to be, then all of that that is beautiful and wonderful in him turns into something ugly and dark. And I I hope that isn't true for all of you, but it has to be true for at least some of us in this room. That again, somehow in our heart of hearts, we've internalized this fear that God is with us only insofar as we are with him. That God is good to us only insofar as we are good to him. That God is gracious to us if we're worthy of it. But if in some way we live faithlessly, rebelliously, disobediently, then all of that turns on us. It's not without reason that we think that. Because scripture is filled with texts that seem to suggest that very fact. That God is with you if you're with him, but against you if you're not. That God is good to those who love him and wrathful toward those who do not. I mean, this, the, the psalm for today is Psalm chapter two, which is a psalm about the wrath of God. Listen to this. Listen to how the psalm ends. If we had time, we would read it all. Talks at length about the fury of God and the the terror that he brings about in the hearts of people. But it it just, it ends this way, Psalm 2. Serve the Lord with fear, with trembling. Kiss his feet, or he will be angry, and you will perish in the way. You will perish in the way. That's a fascinating line because it recalls what I think may be the most bizarre episode in all of Scripture. Right after Moses has the burning bush experience, we'll come back to Moses in a moment, but Moses has the burning bush experience, you know, where God speaks to him and Moses kicks off his shoes, gets the revelation of God's name, and gets the call to Israel. The text says that Moses and his wife and children are on the way, and child, are on the way to Egypt. And suddenly God appears in the way to kill him. The only thing that saves Moses' life is that his wife takes a rock and circumcises their son in the road. You think your life is difficult. (laughs) I'm not sure who that's most traumatic for. I mean, probably the son. But I mean, the mom can't feel good about that, nor can Moses watching all of this take place. I mean, God's trying to kill him, and his wife is between him and God circumcising their son with a rock. That's a bizarre story, I mean, for me. I I don't know how it hits you. That's strange to me, right? And this psalm says, kiss his feet or he will be angry and you will perish in the way, like Moses. And the very next line is, happy are those who take refuge in him. That's a little schizophrenic. I mean, you, you tell me that he at any point could turn against me, that his wrath is quick and that I could die like Moses almost died, and yet that I'm supposed to take refuge in him. I mean, there's a reason that some of us have internalized this fear of God. And not all of it is because people misrepresented God. Some of it is because our scriptures seem to suggest that about God. I can remember just a few years ago speaking at a church, and at the end of the service, I I spoke about some of these same themes, fearing God and loving God, and at the end of the service, a woman came to me, she was so broken open, weeping so hard that I couldn't understand her. It took a long time for her to calm down enough to talk to me. And when she finally did, she told me a story about how her life had come completely apart. 
And the question she asked me was, do you think God would punish me because I didn't forgive my husband for what he did to me? And she told this story about horrible sickness that had come on her child, the sudden death of her father, the loss of her job, all of these horrific circumstances. And what was at the heart of her heart was, somehow I've earned this from God. My husband cheated on me, and instead of forgiving him, I separated from him, and because God is angry with me for having done that, all of these horrors are piling on me. Now, not all of us may have a story quite that stark, but I'm sure there are at least a few of us who are afraid that because we're not worthy, God could be against us at any moment. But I don't think it's only fear of God that's at play in the disciples. At least I don't know that we know for sure. Because I think it also might be that they're afraid of themselves. Afraid not of what God will do to them, but afraid of what they won't be able to do for God. And the more that I walk with the Lord, the more that I kind of mature into my faith, try to mature into my faith, the more I realize that I think that fear is even deeper. I do still think I have fears that God is not really for me unless I'm earning it. But I know that, I've come to the point that I know that that's a lie. I'm at least able to recognize that's not true. But there are still ways in which I'm afraid that I will not be able to respond graciously to the grace of God. And Peter, James, and John have a reason to think that. Because There are two people with Jesus in this moment on the mountain, Moses and Elijah. And what's striking about the fact that those two prophets appear, not all the prophets, these two prophets, Moses and Elijah, is that their lives end with spectacular moments of transfiguration on a mountain immediately followed by failure. We can begin with Elijah's story. So Elijah has the showdown with the prophets of Baal. You remember this? He, Jezebel, and Ahab are queen and king. They've led Israel into idolatry and away from faith in God. And Elijah calls for a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And not quite 500 prophets of Baal gather with him on Mount Carmel for this this moment, this dramatic moment, in which either Baal will be proven to be the true God or Yahweh will be proven to be the true God. And all morning, all through the noon, all through the afternoon, the prophets of Baal cry out to their God, to no avail, no answer comes. And and Elijah mocks them and then takes time dramatically to build the altar, to gather the wood, to cover the altar and the wood with fire. And then prays a short prayer, God, if you are God, show yourself. And fire falls from heaven and consumes everything that's on the altar and the altar and licks up the water that's around it. And all of Israel shouts, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. And the drought that had been hanging over Israel breaks and clouds appear and rain is coming. But the very next moment is Jezebel gets word of what has happened on the mountain and she says, tell the prophet Elijah, I'm coming for him. And the next scene we have in the story is Elijah is in the desert under a brush, a a bit of kind of brush tree head between his knees, saying to God, take my life. I failed. I'm no better than my ancestors. So in this moment of what would seem to be spectacular victory, 
Right? That he, he has shown that God answers with fire, that Yahweh is the true God. It doesn't actually change anything. Israel remains in unfaithfulness. Ahab and Jezebel remain in power. And all that comes from it is Elijah is afraid. And in fact, from that point on, the rest of his life is just simply preparing to transition out. And all the things that he, all the promises that he had made, all the prophecies he had declared, essentially fall short. They pass on to Elisha, and the work of God continues from there. But Elijah's life ends in, in an embarrassment. Notice he says, I am no better than my ancestors. And he has, I think, one particular ancestor in mind, Moses, because Moses has a very similar experience. Moses goes up the mountain into the cloud of glory, into the presence of God, and when he comes out of the presence of God, Moses is shining. Moses' face is radiating light, much like Jesus' does in this story. And you know the story, he has to veil it. And you might think, if you weren't careful, you might think that he's veiling his face because Israel cannot bear the glory, they cannot bear the light. But Paul, 2 Corinthians 3, tells us that's not what's motivating Moses at all. That in fact, Moses veiled his face because he didn't want Israel to see that the glory was fading. And so Moses seems to have been motivated either by self-preservation. He doesn't want Israel to know that he's human after all and the glory does not abide. That even though there are moments in which his life lights up with the glory of God, like the rest of us, there are moments in which that glory cannot be seen. And so he veils himself so that they think he is always shining. Or, I think even more likely, is he's trying to protect God's image. He doesn't want Israel to know that God's glory is the kind of glory that comes and goes. But whatever his motive, Moses comes off the mountain and veils himself. And Paul says that veil settles onto the hearts of the people of God so that they can't see God. And you know how Moses' story ends. He's told to speak to a rock, to call water from it. Instead, he strikes it in anger, and God keeps him from going into the promised land, banishes him to die in the wilderness. So both Moses and Elijah have moments of incredible power, breakthroughs, transfigurations, immediately followed by faithlessness, and their lives end in that failure. So perhaps what is happening on the mountain when the voice speaks and says, this is my beloved son, what's happening is Peter, James, and John are realizing we're not capable of this. If Moses and Elijah couldn't bear the glory, how could we? Just yesterday, there's news broke about Jean Vanier, who was a Catholic philosopher who founded a, a nonprofit called La Arche for severely disabled, intellectually disabled and people all over the world, 35 countries or more. And in, in, he established it in the 60s, and he, when, when Vanier died just a few years ago, he was remarked everywhere, he was remarked as a living saint. And I've, for a long time, held him in high esteem, received his ministry newsletter, read his books, watched his interviews, and yesterday the news broke that for 30 plus years he was abusing women that he worked with. Not just abusing them, but manipulating them spiritually in times of prayer. And what hit me when I heard the news was of course compassion for those women, but also this sickening fear that if that can happen to him, it can happen to me. God, I'm not going to be able to do what you need me to do. 
I mean, I'm sure in the moment of transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are thinking they're invincible, but their stories show that they're not invincible, that even having that kind of transfiguring experience of God does not mean you're going to come off the mountain shining with God's glory and the rest of your life is moving from glory to glory and victory to victory. Their stories suggest, in fact, the opposite, that they come into the presence of God, they're transfigured, and what follows is spectacular failure and disappointment. And that terrifies me. Because not that all of us are going to be like Jean Vanier, not all of us are going to abuse others in that criminal way, but we are all going to fail. And that's what I think grace teaches us. It awakens that fear in us only to touch it in this way. So what happens is the disciples are afraid, they're overcome with fear, and the text says, and Jesus came to them and touched them and said, rise, do not be afraid. There are seven episodes in in Matthew's gospel of touching. Seven episodes, all of them are about healing. But this is the, the most difficult healing of all because it's not healing blinded eyes or bleeding bodies. It's healing the way we imagine God relates to us. And when Jesus touches them, he doesn't give them perfect knowledge. I mean, just a few moments later as they're coming down the mountain, Peter asks an absurd question. that shows he's still clueless about what God is doing. And we know what's going to happen with these disciples in the days to come. Over these next 40 days leading up to Jesus' death, they're going to fail him again and again, and ultimately Peter is going to deny him publicly. And when Jesus dies on the cross, all of these disciples will have abandoned him. They're not wrong to think that they're going to fail. But what grace teaches us about our fear is that God is not afraid of our fear. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And the the hope, the wonder in this passage is in this word, that Jesus touches them and it says they turn to him and they see Jesus alone. Not Moses and Elijah, not even themselves. All they see is Jesus. And that's the word for you this morning that whether you're afraid of God or afraid of yourself or both, you're not wrong, you will fail, and I will too. But there is one who is with us even if we fail. And what we need is a vision of God that sees Jesus alone and a vision of ourselves that see Jesus alone. Because think about this, Moses and Elijah's lives end in failure. Moses dies outside the promised land. Elijah dies before the renewal of the kingdom of Israel. But in this moment, where are they? They're with Jesus in the promised land, in the renewal of Israel. Jesus brings Moses and Elijah into his victory. And that's what God promises to do for you. Amen.